We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jachinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're coming to you from the Hillsdale College Kirby Center here in Washington, D.C. I'm joined today by Jessica Anderson, who is executive director of Heritage Action. Jessica, welcome to Federalist Radio Hour. Thank you. Great to be here. I think it's your first time on the show, right? It is. Okay, so, quite an honor. Yes. Uh, so tell us your background. Tell us a little bit about how you ended up as executive director of Heritage Action. Well, I've spent the last decade working on the policy side of issues, working for President Trump as a political appointee and then working in the grassroots. I, I actually got my start uh, coming out of the Obama years and the fight to repeal Obamacare, cut uh, tax and spending, try to peel back cap and trade. If anyone remembers that from 2010, <laughs> long time ago. Um, and so I grew up in the grassroots. I, I've known kind of the, the heartbeat of America uh, beats at the most local level and that the best way that we can impact any sort of change here in Washington or in state capitals is to work directly with the American people, arm them with the facts, and then basically point the arrow towards those lawmakers to encourage them to do better things uh, when they take office. And so that's what I've made my whole career of. And so when I left the Trump administration, it was an honor to come back and to take over the helm at, at Heritage Action. And I'm glad that we have you here this week, actually, because we record we, we reported at The Federalist um, just recently about documents that Heritage Action obtained um, from Gwinnett County Public Schools uh, down in Georgia. So you've been working on it's just it's fortuitous, really, in a way that the there's this sort of swell of grassroots momentum around education and schooling and families and, and all of that um, at the same time as you're trying to harness that mm -hmm. um, and that's sort of your background. Talk to us what you're doing when it comes about what you're doing when it comes to education um, and, and how these documents are sort of a case study of the work you're doing on the state level. So, you know, I'm a mom. Should have mentioned that in the introduction. <laughs> it's a key part of my identity. Um, and I I lived what I think so many other parents across the country have lived the last two years. You had COVID lockdowns, which kept us home with our kids mm -hmm. um, as they were doing school on the same kitchen table as we were doing work. And so for the first time ever, parents were having a clear glimpse and a clear ear into what their kids were learning. And I think that's actually what started the snowball to where we find ourselves today, because you have you have decades in the making of parents wanting to take back ownership over their children's education. And COVID was that spark, right? The lockdowns was that spark. It caused parents to realize, hey, I'm not actually OK with what my kids are are, are learning here. I want to take back the agency and have some form of transparency and, and oversight over their curriculum that's not something we have seen in a, in a really long time from parents. And so I think what the COVID lockdowns then ushered in was this momentum that we saw that fueled the Virginia governor's race. It certainly fueled parents all across the country taking a second look about what their kids are, are learning. And so fast forward to today and you've got these hot pockets across the country where counties are realizing and they may not even have known it. But they're realizing that critical race theory is actually infused in the curriculum from the very beginning, from that syllabus that is first sent to the school board or to the AP superintendents to approve. It's in there from the from the get go. It's not like a, a topper. It's infused at everything. And so where we are now as a country is, is parents are actively trying to root out the, the lens of that CRT requires you to look at every aspect of society through 
Parents are trying to root that out from the schools. And the only way we know how to do it is to name it and claim it, to see it, to call it out, and then to ask for it to be removed. And so parents are, are literally, it is, a, it is a county by county movement across the country that is actively trying to, to identify this stuff, but then pull it back and take back learning for our kids. I mean, look, at the end of the day, we want our children to be able to learn. We want them to understand the great diversity and, and intellectual depth of this country. We don't want a divisive indoctrination that pits one class against another, one race against another. That's no different than the Marxist teachings that we've long rebuked in this country. So what happened in Gwinnett County is is really, I think, a testament to this, these all these sorts of um, factors clashing together. You've got a public school uh, system in the largest in the state of Georgia. That's Gwinnett County. It's just outside of Atlanta. Gwinnett is actively teaching critical race theory. It's included in their syllabus that they then got approved. Um, and it's been on the books for the last five years. We spotted it. We called it out. We said, why is why are why are we approving lessons plans around this syllabus, around critical race theory as the lens by which things are looked at? Everything from, you know, these are AP classes. This is not, you know, kindergarten. These are advanced classes. And so it covered a whole range of issues. Uh, Gwinnett County Public Schools then quickly took the syllabus down. <laughs> so, I mean, instead of a conversation or a, hey, we didn't realize it, you know, we need to go back and we agree with you. Let's let's get this out of our schools. It was none of that. They took it down, which is a clear admission of guilt. They hit it. And then now we're in a situation where we're working with parents on the ground. We've already issued a FOIA to better understand, OK, what exactly is going on in this county? And it and it comes at the backdrop. This last point I make on this, it, it it comes in the backdrop of a state legislator in the state of Georgia who's recently just introduced a bill which would require that same sort of transparency that we're talking about. So parents don't have to learn how to do FOIAs to understand <laughs> what their kids are being taught. I mean, they shouldn't have to do that, right? We should just have transparency to see what is the syllabus that my children are being taught? What is the curriculum? What are they seeing every single day? And then allow parents to engage and work directly with teachers on, on their academics, not unlike what we did during the lockdowns. So you want to ban books and you want to prevent the teaching of American history, basically. Yeah. And also we're racist and white supremacists. Yes. So it's it's been hard to be a conservative the last two years, but this is the fight. It's a righteous fight and it's one that puts our children first. Yeah. So talk to me about those policy avenues that you guys are working on, because this is a good example of sort of just obtaining the documentation and then also reforming the law. So the transparency is baked into it, that parents don't have to be filing FOIAs to get basic information about about their kids schooling. So what do those policy avenues look like? I imagine they they differ from state to state. um, But what are some of the ways that Heritage Action thinks are the most effective tools uh, to start combating this? Well, you hit the nail on the head when you said every state is different, right? And so every state has a different set of um, education policies that will govern the state's curricula. And it certainly governs how schools, superintendents, school boards actually apply the principles of education. So I think first and foremost, not only do we have to address CRT, critical race theory, directly, but then we need state bills that do two things. First, like this Georgia bill, actually have transparency around the curriculum 
And then second, a complete rejection of critical race theory in any curricula. Mm. And that's what we saw with Governor DeSantis from Florida. He had a, he had a, an executive order as a ban. I'd love to see stuff like that actually going through the state legislature. That way, that way it's fully codified and it can't be repealed if a new governor, let's say from the other political party, comes in and then overturns it. So we're really looking for that one-two punch of transparency, plus rejecting and, and rooting out critical race theory from any of this curricula. And I think what CRT has allowed um, parents, grassroots activists, certainly Heritage Action, is to be reinvigorated in this in the larger fight for education freedom for for states. I mean, we have long espoused the principle that education dollars should follow the student, so they should be able to flow from the student as if they if the parent wants to move the student from you know one school to the next that you shouldn't wrap up all the government funding around the schools, it should actually flow to the child. And so CRT and the rejection of it at the state level allows us to pivot towards the larger goal, which is universal school choice, and allowing more parents to have more uh, flexibility, more options of where their children go to school. And that means, you know, if you're not getting what you need to be getting from, let's say, a public school, that if the money follows the student, then those dollars are available to the parent and the student to then move into a private school, a magnet school, a charter school. I'm a product of charter schools in South Florida. I mean, my parents would say that that gave me so much opportunity to get out of the public school system that at the time was basically lost. Charter gave an opportunity for my parents to have hands-on approach to the curriculum that I was being taught. And it'll and because of Florida's school choice laws, it allowed the money to flow through the student and not be caught up at the school. And the idea is that it creates a sense of of competition yeah. among schools, so that when people the, the market, so to speak, the market is speaking, um, the schools will follow suit, so as not to be totally dried up. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the other piece here is there's there's this really great conservative conversation that I know you're aware of going on of like is it worth still fighting, right? Are public schools right. so lost? Like, have we just completely um, lost our footing there? And it's a difficult answer because, you know, unless you have the, if, unless your state is set up to give school choice, then a lot of parents don't have a choice because they can't actually financially um, support their kid going to a parochial school or a private school, or maybe it's a rural area and there's not a magnet program or there's not a charter program. And so, you know, I don't think as conservatives we should ever relinquish the battlefield. I don't think we should ever walk away from public schools, which is why going back to the state lawmaker solutions here, it's the one-two punch. It's the transparency of the curriculum, and then it's rooting out the CRT, and it's rooting out anything else that might be divisive in 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 the actual curriculum. And, you know, we haven't, I don't think, as a, a movement, taken the time to really study how we got here with CRT. Yes, yeah. But if you go backwards and you look at the fight that was bubbling in this country around Common Core, so much of the Common Core anxiety was on the standards, right? So much of the conservative movement fought Common Core standards because of how it, it pitted students against students, right? But what was coming underneath Common Core that brought CRT is the curriculum. Mm -hmm. The Common Core curriculum is what is infused with critical race theory. And it snuck in there in a way that was like, no, everyone needs an even playing field. We want standardized testing. But it's reconditioned how our curriculum now is applied at the public school level. And so we have a lot of work to do to roll this back. Transparency, 
rejecting critical race theory are step one, but pushing states more towards school choice to free up opportunity for parents is certainly the end goal here. And I don't think we should give up the fight or relinquish the playing field when it comes to public schools and really try to go in there and, and peel back as much of these common core curriculums as possible where they're rooted in fear. Have you ever stopped to wonder why internet access is so much cheaper these days, like 30 to 40 bucks a month? Well, it's because internet service providers aren't just making money off subscription fees. They're also making money from spying on your internet activity and selling your history and data to big tech companies. So what's the best way to make sure that 100% of your data is encrypted and that your ISP can't get a hold of it? You guessed it, ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure tunnel between all your devices and the internet so that everything you do online is encrypted. It reroutes your connection through a secure server. This blocks your ISP from seeing everything that you do online. All they can see is that you're connected to an ExpressVPN server, but nothing beyond that. And it's not just for your phone or computer. ExpressVPN works on all of your devices. It works on your tablets, smart TVs, even your router, so your entire family can always stay protected. I can't stress this enough. ExpressVPN is so simple to use. I use it. I love it. You just open up the app, tap one button to connect, and that's it. Your data is your business. Protected at expressvpn.com slash federalist. Visit expressvpn.com slash federalist to get three extra months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's expressvpn.com slash federalist to learn more. The good folks over at Blinkist have 22 ideas for 2022. Their goal is to empower people to grow personally and professionally by discovering content that inspires, motivates, and give them new perspectives on their lives and the world in 2022. Blinkist has the perfect content to help you be a better, smarter, and more knowledgeable you in 2022. So how are they going to do that? Well, 22 ideas for 2022 addresses a problem we talk about all of the time on this podcast. We are drowning in content. So how do we get through all of the old content, let alone the new content, to make sure we are as informed as we want to be and as we need to be? Well, Blinkist makes it pretty easy. Some of the most popular titles in their politics section right now include What Happened, Fire and Fury, A Promised Land, Fear, A Short History of Brexit, The Soul of America, The Future of Capitalism, Black Flags, The Prince, and even Letters from a Stoic. And that's what we're talking about when we say getting through new content and old content. Probably, if you're like me, some of those books have been on your reading list, and it's so important to dimensionalize our understanding of new and historical events, of course, so that we can come to current events with the right perspective, especially in these very confusing times. And we all know what tech is doing to our attention spans. So Blinkist makes it easy to be a better version of yourself and to get through all of this important reading. Letters from a Stoke is a great example of something that's been on my reading list because I thought it would help me understand some of the problems that we are in right now by looking back in history. It's a confusing time. This has been on my reading list for a while, but with all the new content to sift through, it's just hard to get back to the old stuff and the new stuff and come away with the information you need to evaluate current events. 
Blinkist's selections make it really easy, and that is very, very helpful. I think you will all find it helpful, too, and I think that we are better off as a society the more we have studied and the more reading we do. So right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Federalist to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Federalist to get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash Federalist. I was actually going to ask about several things that you just touched on. One, public schools, whether we should be, whether we should relinquish the playing field, whether we should, um, as the sort of conservative movement, um, or it's not even a conservative issue. You probably experienced that on the state level. A lot of these parents are probably not like movement conservatives. That's right. (laughs) They're new. Right, 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 right. And so then that brings up this other question. I mean, in Gwinnett County, we're talking about how these uh, standards have been in place for five years. Five years, that is a really long time. Why is it that when Common Core was being implemented and there was a lot of conservative grassroots action around that, absolutely, it's the parallels are very clear, but Common Core did not spark the fire then that CRT has now. And why do you think that is? Is it COVID? Is it the sort of Trump era and the, the cultural politics of our time? What, what did it? Well, My take on this is nothing happens in American culture or American politics in a vacuum, right? The things that we're dealing with today are multifaceted, where you have, you know, the explosion of culturally divisive issues like CRT, but then also the racial politics and identity politics that the left just completely pushes down any average American's throat, whether it's through television or the movies or music, pop culture. I mean, it's just... It's it's overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And so I think the 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 resurrection, if you will, of parents coming back to the scene. Yes, it was brought on from the covid lockdowns, but the fire was able to really be kindled, I think, because you have everything else that's going on in this cultural blender that's in the backdrop that parents are like, wow, our country's out of time. Mm-hmm. If we don't get this kind of stuff right now, my like what's going to happen to my children? The world that we're seeing before us is an America not that I grew up in. It's not America that my parents had. So what we are fighting for is not to move backwards. It's the ability to actually move forward. It's the ability to actually have an America where you can thrive, where you can start a family, where you can get a a decent education, where you can have a job. And, you know, both spouses don't need to work if they don't want to. I mean, there's there's so much goodness that comes when you get the cultural stuff right first. And then let's start looking at, okay, we have other major fiscal issues in this country we need to deal with. We have an invasion at the border we need to deal with. So there's so much that's going on that's just tumultuous right now that I I think had we not have been in this kind of critical juncture point for American society, you probably wouldn't have seen parents come out of the woodwork. But because everything is happening at once, and you're seeing, you know, the aftermaths of 2020, a rejection of Biden, Biden completely overplaying his hand, you know, in the first hundred days, let alone the first year of his administration. I mean, it's just caused people out of the woodwork. So, frankly, I haven't seen this sort of enthusiasm. Um, it's the same level of a fever pitch that we saw in 2010 with the rise of the Tea Party. It's just on a different set of issues led by a different set of people. And I'm so proud of the parents that have 
said, hey, I'm going to go to the school board meeting. I'm going to figure out when it's even meeting and I'm going to show up. I'm going to go to the microphone and I'm going to advocate for my child. That's awesome. Yeah, it's really interesting. And the Tea Party is such an interesting parallel as well, because I actually think the conservative movement, and I'm really curious for your take on this, the conservative movement right now is much better at talking about these issues than it was then and than it was during the original sort of common core fight. Um, and again, like I'm, I'm particularly curious as whether you agree with that, but for all of the all of the sort of good energy that the Tea Party channeled, um, it does seem to me that there are more immediate sort of local results happening right now with CRT. But it also seems to me like part of that is because we're bringing new people into this coalition um, by talking about these issues in a way that didn't necessarily happen before Donald Trump. Mm. So I've written about this a couple times. Um, my, my take is similar to yours, but um, with a couple additions for us to, to grapple with as, as conservatives. I think what the, the Tea Party built and what it built so well was actually activist infrastructure. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, prior to 2008, 2010, like the infrastructure for activism largely relied on the party. Yeah. It, it wasn't through 912 groups. Remember those? Yeah. You know, it wasn't through Tea Party activist groups, Tea Party patriots, Freedom Works, Heritage Action when we came on the scene. You know, that sort of infrastructure at the state level that was running adjacent to the Republican Party, it just didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so what the Tea Party allowed to happen is that it allowed conservative activists to get together, to form locally, to build a community, mm -hmm. and then to actively and, and hopefully in a well-educated way engage and talk about these issues. And then that's how people started showing up at town halls. That's how they started asking questions, getting members of Congress on record, then slowly they built relationships with their lawmakers with the goal of holding them accountable. Then you had the Boehner years, and then all of that led, I think, in a very triumphant way to President Trump. But my point of this is, is if you look back at activism in the last 10 years, the infrastructure that the Tea Party movie brought in, brought it, brought forward, we are taking advantage of that today. Right. Because activists know that they can't be a lone wolf. They can't be by themselves. They have to have some form of community. They have to find other activists in their area. They have to join together. They have to swap notes. They have to get trained. I mean, that's what we do at Heritage Action. We spend a lot of time working on the ground, training these activists of how to, you know, how to have a successful phone call when you call the Washington, D.C. office so you can actually talk to the legislative director and not just the staff assistant when they answer how to speak in an eloquent and educated way about the policy issues, how to get, get that commitment from your lawmaker that they're going to vote one way or the other. Apply that to the state level. Same thing with state lawmakers, with governors. Same thing with school board attendees. Now we're having to teach activists a whole new um, set of tools, how to submit a FOIA request. <laughs> Didn't think we were going to have to teach them that one, but that's where we're at. And so conservative activism has evolved, I think, in, in, in really powerful ways the last 10 years. But it's that key infrastructure that told us we need to meet together as community organizers, as community activists, that's what the Tea Party sparked. And 12 years later, we're taking advantage of that infrastructure and we're welcoming in new people and they're getting connected. They're not lone wolves. So when one parent says, hey, I want to be involved, he or she is immediately pulled into a great diverse network of Sentinels, of, of Tea Party patriots, of Freedom Works activists. I mean, there's so many groups that exist at on the ground level to do this. And I think, frankly, to do it very, very well. So 
I would definitely encourage us all to have kind of that wide angle lens mm -hmm. of looking at the last decade and, and how we got here today. The other thing that's really interesting about activists today that really uh, is a contrast to Tea Party is in 2010 or, or 12, when if you spoke out, like you weren't in fear of losing your job, right? <laughs> you weren't in fear of being canceled. What a different time. What a different time. And so, you know, activists today, it is like you are brave, you are courageous, you know, to stand up. Like in Gwinnett County, there's a series, there's a group of moms that have come together um, to expose a lot of this and to hold the public public school officials accountable. Like, who knows what's going to happen to them? Could they get canceled? Could they lose their job? Could their kids be targeted and then it taken out on them? I mean, there's so many new dynamics that because of cancel culture and the vitriol hatred that the left has for Americans that you just don't know how some of this is going to play out. I mean, we saw this with the, the fight of election integrity this last year with state lawmakers losing their day jobs mm -hmm. because they were introducing bills. I mean, when was the last time that even happened? So there are a lot of parallels, but I think I, I think of it much more um, as building and an evolution from the Tea Party days, bringing in that key infrastructure. And now we've had to evolve to be smarter, to know the issues, to continue to grow our skills, adding in new skills and then going out and leading. Last thing I'd say on this, obviously, it's something I, I love to talk about, but <laughs> this, the conservative right, conservative activism on the ground, we finally have our our act together. The, yeah. the left has had their act together like this for decades. Mm -hmm. They just call it the unions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, President Obama, former President Obama, how did he get his job as his start as a community organizer? Mm. Public sector unions and, and, and George Soros funded operations have been doing this for decades. And so I'm proud of the conservative grassroots movement of where we are today. It took us 10 years, over 10 years to get here, but it's strong and mighty. It's evolving and it's going to continue, I think, to be the tip of the sphere to push back on lawmakers to do what's right for Americans. It's coming from Wisconsin. The mm. point about infrastructure is it rings very true to me that that was you sort of laid the groundwork and it's been building and building. I wonder even just and that also in many ways was the test case for what, how the left treats people now and that we heard these like early bubblings of anybody who goes to a Tea Party rally is a racist and right. blah, blah, blah. And it was sort of treated at the time as like, whoa, like maybe th this is like the far left. But now it's, you know, Don it's Lemon. mainstream. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So. Is there a way that you think, even just in, in terms of the language, I'm curious what you think about this. It seems to me the right is is more comfortable being on offense post-Trump administration and, and coming in and saying, this is, you know, this is racism. This is actually what you're doing is being racist um, in, a, in a way that didn't exist necessarily in the Tea Party years. I think there was more maybe, um, I don't know. I, I'm curious. What do you think about that? Well, I think I think what President Trump I think what President Trump did so well is he taught Americans not to be bashful or quiet in the fight, mm -hmm. right? He, it, I, I think the tone just shifted. Now, right. did he do everything right? No, of course not. But is did the tone shift to actually put conservatives back in the driver's seat and actually on offense? Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Such a simple thing like wishing people Merry Christmas, right? <laughs> like that was like a thing when President Trump was running, remember? Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, that was indicative of the quiet, silent majority that we <laughs> used to be called, right? Where we would whisper Merry Christmas. Trump busted that open and said, no more, be proud, 
say Merry Christmas. It was simple, but it was symbolic of such a larger momentum of saying to the conservative activists across the country, to freedom-loving Americans, don't be bashful anymore. Stand up, speak up for what is right and what is true and what is good and what is noble of this country. Trump, in in the most ironic of ways, brought our country to have that, I think, and we're seeing the dividends of that sort of um, strength and that sort of boldness at the local level than we've ever seen before. We're also starting to see it um, translate into the sorts of elected officials that we're sending to Congress. I mean, yes, Republicans are in the minority right now, but there are so many new freshman Republicans that are bold and boisterous about what they believe in. Look at Congresswoman Kat Kamek out of Florida, yeah. the youngest female um, uh, member of Congress, I think really to date, she beat Elise Stefanik. She beat AOC even. Mm-hmm. And she is out there. She is bold. She is direct. And she's unafraid to talk about conservative issues in a real way. And I, that's the sort of leadership and boldness that I think not only have we seen from the grassroots that Trump allowed people to come to the microphone. He said it was OK. Um, but then hopefully we're just going to see that even more and more and more from the elected leaders that we send both to Washington, but then also to state capitals. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's part of what um, pitted, I think, that pit some of these conservative groups um, against what used to be a pretty solid sort of, I don't want to say relationship, but just sort of you know, there was a, a pro-business mm-hmm. um, atmosphere on the right that was very understandable in different times, um, but has now, I think, really shattered in some important ways. You guys have dealt with that. So I guess I, I think the union question is an interesting one because it raises this issue of as corporations are treating employees in states around the country terribly on cultural issues and are forcing them to undergo CRT trainings, as Chris Rufo has documented extensively. It's very similar to what we see in the schools, but it's coming from HR departments and being targeted at adults. Um, is there now, because sort of the the conservative movement is less attached to the business community that it used to be, more interest, like the bills that Senator Rubio has introduced, Jim Banks has introduced, in holding these corporations and these bad corporate actors accountable when it comes to workers? Yeah. So first and foremost, we absolutely need to hold the corporate woke community accountable to the customer because right. it's in it. And it's not just customer for customer's sake. It's because behind a customer is a family, is a mom and is a dad. I mean, we're more than just market growth, yes. right? Yes. I mean, we have to, we have to recognize that and stop thinking that we can be just linear viewed so linearly. That said, you know, what I said earlier, I apply to this same fight. We shouldn't seed the ground. Mm-hmm. If conservatives leave, you know, supporting business, entirely, then we're just going to allow the left to usher in and own another huge segment of society. We left Hollywood. (laughs) We left it, right? Whoever made that decision, it wasn't mine. (laughs) But someone made that decision. And conservatives are basically like nowhere in Hollywood. We're not producing movies. We're not producing television. And now we're having to create, you know, new streams like Ben Shapiro and what he's doing. I mean, it's just entirely separate. And so I would argue, just like in education, when it comes to business, we we have to fight to right the wrongs and we shouldn't walk away from that playing field. We should use the leverage that we have. Yeah. We should use our, our, our leverage, everything from the consumer side to the activist side to pushing back. And when when that fails and at the point that that fails, then take stock and walk away. 
but then come back, right? I mean, I think that's what, the, frankly, the, the fight around election integrity taught us all because it was like overnight people completely corporates corporations completely, they just were overtaken by, you know, the left's version of, a, of the swamp. They never even read the Georgia state election integrity bill and they all sign on to this petition within 24 hours. It's like they all got a talking, a series of talking points, you know, Probably 24 hours. <laughs> That's like, sign this. This is what it says. And no one even bothered to read the bill. Right. But if you look, we held our ground. We were firm and we said, no, look at what the Georgia election integrity bill does. It's not you know, starving people and not handing out water. It's actually increasing the number of days that you can vote because there's Sunday voting. You can have normal water and food um, in the way that you would in any other polling place. You just can't do it as electioneering right up to the point of being in the ballot box. It has more, Georgia has more early voting days than let's say Joe Biden's home state of Delaware. I mean, yes. we all know these stories now, but remember when we were at that point of, of, of last year, the left was having a, Knitship. Yeah. They were losing their minds. So they came out with this really aggressive stance from corporations that they were going to boycott Georgia. They weren't going to do business in Georgia. Joe Biden was calling the state racist. All star game pulled out. All of that happened and it happened so fast. Mm. And then what happened? People started reading the bill. Conservatives started pushing back. We were on offense. We were ready for it. We pushed back hard. Businesses changed their tune. There was economic fallout for the MLB in their choices to move the All-Star game. There was there was reputational fallout for baseball in a way that, you know, the NBA had experienced, but baseball hadn't experienced yet. And then businesses started changing their minds. And then if you look at Georgia, what Georgia, Georgia took the heat. But by the time we got 30 days later to the Florida bill, where was the noise? Interesting. There was no... You know, public upward. What are you going to do? Move Disney World from Orlando? <laughs> like, I mean, this is like, but this is what I mean. Like, so, so Georgia took the heat. Mm -hmm. Georgia led on the issue, absorbed all of it. Conservatives never left going on offense. We just clearly articulated the bill is not crazy. This is what it does. Slowly, businesses changed their mind, realized they were in a losing fight, and by the time we got to the Florida bill, they had nowhere to go but to stay silent and accept it. That's what we need to do. That's the playbook. Don't leave the playing field to the left. Mm. They're going to they're going to screw it. Allow conservatives, arm them with the facts, fight back. Truth is on our side. Just talk clearly and eloquently and then hold our ground. Yeah. That's a that's a heartening uh, example, actually. And I want to wrap up on a sort of 30,000 foot question that our uh, Federalist listservs were abuzz about um, just yesterday. There was an article in The Week revisiting that libertarian moment of 2012. I think like Rand Paul was on the cover of Time uh, back then and said, you know, the libertarian moment. There was so much talk about how the right was being, uh, and especially young people on the right, were being, um, they were just more libertarian than they were like conservative or, or maybe even fusionist. And that it's it's talking about how is this coming into conflict is the crt stuff libertarianism is all of this libertarianism is it like get off my lawn government like don't tell my kid what to do libertarianism and if so does that kind of clash with some of the ideas the new right has about uh public schools for instance a really good question like how do you see these tensions 
playing out in the conservative movement right now? Are we are we coming back to a libertarian moment, um, or is this a reasserting what always made the conservative movement the conservative movement the marriage of all of these different um, parts of the stool? So I come at this from a very grassroots perspective, which is when I'm traveling across the country, meeting with our activists, talking with Sentinels, what I don't, what I hear is not, I'm a conservative or I'm a libertarian or I'm a new right or an alt right. Like no one uses that language in like real life. Right. They use things like, yeah, I loved Reagan and here's why. Yeah. I love Trump and here's why. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I think Washington makes the mistake of trying to completely compartmentalize every part of our ideology on the right. Totally. What we should do is we should allow the American people to be clear about what we want to see from a public policy position and then adapt our policies to that. Now, I'm not saying we ignore, you know, any sort we ignore rule of law and we just follow the whims of, of, of you know, we wake up the next day and we should do X. There has to be a balance. That's why you have you have governing rule of law. You have social and societal norms for safety and security. All of that is important. But when it comes to kind of the nitpicking that's going on right now, I would just encourage people, go talk to your parents. <laughs> go talk to a normal person <laughs> that is not connected to Washington. And I guarantee you, they're not nitpicking like how we do. And get so, off Twitter. Yeah. Get off Twitter. Yeah. Oh my gosh, can we please get bumper stickers that say <laughs> get off Twitter? I mean, it's it's so dangerous, I think, to get in this cycle. Of course, ideological barriers are important. Of course, having a, having a party and a platform and agenda is important. But I think we as conservatives, we actually have a really, really unique moment to reset our priorities yeah. that are based on putting American families um, first and putting that above everything else and realizing that the fight right now is against the left. They have a fundamentally different worldview than we do. This is not 20 years ago of the Democrat Party that was saying things like, well, you know, we just disagree on these things, but we all want to make America great. They're saying they don't want to make America great. Yeah. So we need to recognize, I think, as a conservative movement that the fight is against the left and where the American people are right now. They want to see lawmakers in Washington fighting for them. They want to see that same fight at the state level. They want to see governors taking action. That's why you see people call Governor DeSantis America's governor, because what the work he does in Florida resonates. If you're in Iowa, if you're in Nebraska, if you're in New York, you want to see that emulated at your state level. So my take on this. Leave the schematics to other people. We're going to stay focused on the grassroots heartbeat, which is to rid critical race theory in our schools, have greater transparency in our curriculum, protect life, actually go on offense for things like election integrity, secure the border, restore some form of fiscal sanity and get to work. And we have a huge opportunity to do that. Name it, call it out and move on. On a practical level, so Senator Rand Paul was just down the street at Big Love Board. That. Big yeah. Board. And that felt like, I mean, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't, that's not something that should have to be called libertarian, right? Because this is, you know, two years it's into right the emergency powers. Right. Yeah. It, it's not libertarian. I mean, it's, it's great that libertarians are taking the issue up, but that's just, just basic how this should be working, how the government should function. And so I guess on an optimistic note, to me, it seems like all of that, that sort of, um, academic, I've retired sort of conversation about the direction of the conservative movement. 
what you're saying is really interesting that like this is this is just like sanity versus leftism and with that there's a coalition um that can come together that wouldn't necessarily just be movement conservatives or anybody that was typically from from that vein but a much broader one and i imagine just to close things out that's what you have seen on uh working on the state level when it comes to crt and and vaccines and covid regulations imagine advocating for common sense yeah (laughs) Like, literally, imagine advocating for common sense. Can we just have a list of principles that are common sense? Because we're in the crazy part of American history where we're actually combating flat-out insane proposals that we can't believe are continuing to be beaten down the throats of the American people. So let's advocate for some common sense. Let's look at these key focus areas that not only do we have to get right here in Washington, but also in these state capitals. And so I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. America is is a country that knows how to fight. Um, we know how to rebound, but we have to we have to recognize that everyone plays a part in this. And that's why I, I really, truly am thankful for the best part of my job, which is getting out of Washington and hearing stories of Americans that are coming to the mic, that are demanding some form of accountability and transparency and honesty from every form of elected official, local all the way to federal. That's what's going to turn America around. And it's only then that are we going to have elected officials that recognize that their job is to represent the American people, not any other form of a special interest. Jessica Anderson, Executive Director of Heritage Action. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, we've been coming to you, to you today from the Hillsdale College Kirby Center here in Washington, D.C. I'm Emily Jashinsky, Culture Editor here at The Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the press.